if you could start a business for let's say a million bucks, I know that's a lot of money. And then roughly 40 years later, sell it for $9.3 billion. Would that be a success? I would think so. That's what 9,000 X. I don't know. I'm not good at math, but I think that's pretty impressive. The even crazier thing is we're talking about WWE being purchased or, or merging, however, whatever the specific words are with UFC, but uh, to become a global brand off of a territory. So they used to do these things uh, in certain areas. Just think of like geographical areas. Vince McMahon had WWWF at the time uh, buys that from his dad. So it basically just was in the, the new England area. Then he goes, Oh, you know what? I want to, I want to start make this expand and start doing all of the territories in the country across the world. And it became a global juggernaut. And what is that? Nine, 12. So how many, how many, how many zero, how many figures is that? Uh, is it 12? 11. A lot. Anyway, nine thousand. Yeah. Incredible. Kudos to them. What do you think about that? Like, uh, do you ever think about stuff like that? Just from like a, when you're talking to, to founders or entrepreneurs, like, Hey, like you stick with this a long time. Cause a lot of them probably wouldn't stick around for yeah. 40 years. Right. Well, and that's a, Yeah. I mean, it's just, and it's, it's playing the long game. You've got to play the long game. If you're an entrepreneur you're a founder and you want to uh, try to turn something around quick, I mean, it's just, you're in the wrong business. It's, it's just, it doesn't happen like that. You've got think, to play the long game. I think they have a ton of profit every year too. Something like 150 million, which is insane. That could be, Zach stat, but I feel like I've seen that somewhere before. So, I mean, they were doing pretty well for a long time to the merge into that, but yeah, long game is important. Do you think when you're starting a business, you think about, cause a lot of people, a lot of, uh, I don't know, white collar service providers will say, you need to have your exit strategy in play. Do you think that's something that. I, th uh, I think that, I think that you need to understand or at least have something in play. If you have founder of uh, co-founders, uh, so I mean, if something had, say you caught lightning in a bottle and then all of a sudden, uh, someone jumped uh, and was like, Hey, I want to buy your company. Uh, what happens if you've got uh, one founder that wants to sell and then two that want to uh, play the long game? I it just, so from that standpoint, I think that you, it's worth having the conversation to know, Hey, is there a number or what, do, what was that? Um, company, there's two companies I can think of during COVID that got really popular Wordle sold to. Uh, Wall Street Journal, I think it was for, I think about 2.5 million bucks is what I saw. He did that as a side project for his wife. But then remember when COVID first started and there was that um, something party, like watch party on your phone? Oh, yeah. Did that ever sell? Because that seemed like idea. that hit lightning in a bottle super quick. That was a flash in the pan. Yeah. I did, yeah. But who knows how long uh, they were working on it? Might it be out beforehand. But right timing. And then I don't know whatever happened. But speaking of which, we are excited to have lightning in a bottle with today's guest. Drew Kiever. How's it going, Drew? It's going well. Thank you guys so much for making this opportunity available. I'm uh, excited to be here. I'm a longtime listener of the show. Uh, first long time, time listener, first time caller. That's yeah. right. Really excited to be here. Thank you guys. Yeah. So what's your question? <laughs> My question for the show? <laughs> I guess, you know, I didn't get the black t-shirt memo. So that's, uh, that's the first, uh, first thing I missed. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the, the question I have really is just like, you know, what what does it take to to successfully run a podcast for so many episodes? You guys have been doing this for quite a while, and it's it's been a lot of fun to watch evolve over the years. Yeah. What is it, 154? Is that right, Andrew? Yeah, 154. So crazy. Yeah, that's, I mean, we're, we're, we're approaching three years, right? Or we, we just went over three years. I. Facebook, March. Facebook memories. No, I think it actually was in April. Was because it April? I, I feel like Facebook showed me a memory, which is the only thing Bookface is good for these days, is it showed me, oh, you did this, this thing three yeah. years ago. I was like, oh, okay. And I feel like it was April at that point. So we've hit, we're in year four. Congratulations. It's a big, big achievement to, to make it four years with a podcast. It's, uh, yeah, it's wild to, to think about it. Because it, we just take it one one week at a time, and um... so there's a, like I like my podcasting tips one on one would be like set a routine, so like get it on a schedule, uh, because then you know when to release it. I think that's a good thing in general from a marketing perspective, whether it's a podcast, a blog post, a social post, whatever. You know, have that frequency. Pretty pretty quickly, we decided on Thursdays at eleven. Was it always at eleven? 
what yeah. was it at noon before? Yeah. So pretty quickly we we did it at that point. I think having a partner is is helpful in that case. I think there's a lot of probably solo founder podcast. Um, I don't know the 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 schedule thing would probably be my number one thing. Uh, don't worry about super expensive equipment. Um, oh, so Andrew just said that May twelfth was episode one. No, no way. That's wrong. <laughs> I don't know because I I, I I don't know. But the crazy thing for me is Drew is that is that I'll still run into people where at an event or down the street somewhere, and they're like, "Man, how come I haven't been on the show yet?" And it's just like. Well, you who was, just, who was oh, the last person to say that? Um, I'm trying to go. Well, you're putting me on the spot now. But you remember when we had uh, Jeff Johnson? He was like, "Man, why did it take so long?" Man, I'm I'm 117. It took me 117 episodes for you guys to bring me on. Well, we and, tried uh, around 40, probably. He just yeah, didn't, yeah. But and it shows that you like you wanted to really build up your skill as podcasters before having on a big guest like that. So yeah, yeah. Anywho, so Drew, uh, I've met you once. Tim, I think, has met you a couple of times. Um, for the audience, who is Drew Kiever? What is, what is the thing that you're working on? Yeah, I'm a co-founder of Advisor Finder. We're building an online marketplace to make it easier for people to find financial advisors and the information on them. The goal really is to help people find the right financial advisor for their unique situation. And my background is not on the wealth management side. I actually worked in banking on the marketing side. So I kept track of our marketing campaigns, uh, making sure that we're getting the right uh, return on investment for certain marketing spends. And so a little less than a year ago, I started working on Advisor Finder with a small team here in Virginia. And we're really excited to be solving this problem of making it easier to find a financial advisor. How did you first... Um stumble upon this idea or identify that, hey, this is a problem that, that needs to be solved and we're going to be the ones to solve it. So a few years ago, um, I was actually looking for a financial advisor, just someone who could help me with an overall financial plan. Obviously, I'm, I'm pretty young and certainly wasn't making a lot of money and didn't have a lot saved at the time. But I knew that, you know, investing is important and, and starting to think about my bigger financial goals at a young age is important. And so, you know, I started searching online to try to find an advisor for my unique situation, someone who doesn't have a lot of investable assets, but who, you know, knows it's important to to start saving. And I was just confused by all the options out there. There are so many different options for advisors and ways that you can pay your advisor. So I turned to one of my closest friends, Jason, Jason was an advisor at Merrill Lynch, and he helped me navigate all the different options out there. Um, you know, we both realized that there's just, it's such a daunting process to choose an advisor and to really know that you're choosing the right one. And there's no online solution that really makes it easy to find the necessary information about an advisor. So we kind of put our heads together and came up with an idea to build a marketplace that is more open, open to the public for anyone to search for an advisor um, and started talking to more clients about their experience when finding one and, you know, just put together a team in, in June and haven't looked back since. Yeah. I, when I think about it, I'm, I'm curious um, on your customer discovery do, do people, would they prefer to find an advisor that they are previously have known or someone that is a stranger? Because like personal, I mean, your, your personal finances, I mean, it's, it's personal, you know, and, mm -hmm. and you're like, you know, to open up that, that kimono, if you will, I mean, that, uh, I would be pretty selective in terms of just out of fear of judgment or whatever the case might be. What, what have you found? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a very personal decision and it's a, de a decision that requires a lot of trust. You know, whoever you choose to manage your investments or to help you build a financial plan is someone that obviously you have to trust a lot. And also it's, it's someone that you should feel comfortable kind of being vulnerable around and maybe asking a question that might come across the wrong way, but the advisor still can help you with that. So I really think it's, it's more so about personal preference, whether or not you want someone who can help you with um, building a financial plan or more so just managing your investments. And obviously those are two separate services, 
um, but they kind of play together. And so I think it's, it's really just more so about your personal preference of what you want as an investor. Do you want an advisor who's going to, you know, be really focused on the numbers or do you want someone that maybe is more focused on the goals that you have? Um, so I think, you know, going back to your question about finding someone who you already know versus a complete stranger, I, I really, again, think that that comes down to your, your choice. Um, a lot of people might, might try to find someone that works with their family member or one of their friends, but in some cases that might lead to a disconnect because if I go ask my uncle for an advisor and, you know, he, he refers me to his advisor, well, I have a completely different situation than my uncle. You know, I'm, I'm not in my fifties. I haven't earned money throughout my lifetime. So I just have a completely different uh, financial situation than my uncle. So I think it's important to, to really find a professional who can help you with your tailored needs. The financial advisor is amongst this group of individuals that I fear Hollywood has made them look like real um, negative Nancy's, if you will. Like these people that are just aggressive, annoying, let's call them business card collectors. You know, those ones at the networking events, they're kind of like realtors. It's like, hmm, don't want to be around that person. Uh, is that a real thing? Do they see that? Do they try to do things to like, I feel like that is the just as big of a problem in there is it in the financial advisor world than than actually the connection of them and what where where do you see kind of financial advisors and just being portrayed as such a an aggressive breed if you will it's a really good question a really good point and I'm almost curious what you know what Hollywood portrayal you might have seen of a financial advisor um because I'd, I'd love to see that you know movie or TV show but um I think, you know, some advisors might fall into that category, not all of them. Um, but, you know, I almost, I almost feel like it's a symptom of the way that the industry is set up. You know, the, the marketing regulations are so strict that it really limits what advisors are able to do to mm. get their name out there. And so, you know, the idea of an, of an advisor kind of going to these networking events and passing out business cards or collecting other business cards I think that's basically a symptom of the fact that there's very, very few things that advisors can do within the regulations of the SEC and FINRA to, you know, meet new clients and get their name out there. So I think a lot of, a lot of younger advisors and um, advisors are aware of that. You know, the industry is really changing a lot. A lot of advisors are retiring out, new advisors are coming in. And so I think this new wave of, of advisors is looking for ways to kind of market themselves to the next generation of investors. Um, and I also think that the, re the regulators are looking at ways to kind of update rules and regulations so that the industry as a whole is more ready for the next wave of investors. I had a, uh, we had an event or we had a sponsor at Hatch back in the day. And one of the um, sponsors was a financial advisor. And uh, we did a video with him and um, I guess it did well. Is this who I think it is? I don't know. Who do you think it is? Xerxes? No. Yeah. Oh, it's not what No. Okay. Um, but actually, now that I think about it, that happened too. So I've had two financial advisors on um, in some sort of sponsorship through Hatch that we got them some publicity from. And then I guess their um, umbrella company saw it and was like, no, you have to take that down. It's just so weird that like something that's so novice that I'll, that is such an entryway to an entry point for so many businesses to do create a video talk about some of these things is is not just frowned upon but not allowed by these groups like I, number one why does that happen but then number two is what do you what can you then do to create a step that allows them to be found on this platform where a lot of these other people that are going to be found can't post in your normal your normal medias if you will yeah. So to address the first part of your question, um, advisors and financial firms have to play inside of pretty strict regulatory boundaries. So, uh, you know, uh, it depends on which firm. And I think some firms, you know, depending on the size, have much more strict rules that they have to follow. Um, so, you know, it really just kind of depends on, on what firm they're a part of and 
um, you know, how strict their compliance department is, but you know, the, the topic of financial advice, I think is understandably, <clears throat> excuse me, highly regulated because, you know, like we were just talking about before the episode, people are on social media more than ever before. And people might, might see someone posting about finance and take it as investment advice. And that could lead to a negative outcome for that person. So the industry tries to do their best to regulate that and avoid any kind of conflict where an advisor could post the wrong kind of investment advice or any kind of investment advice. So I think advisors are, are very careful about doing that. But, but like I said before, I really think that the industry is realizing that maybe some of the regulations are just too strict and they can come up with a, a more efficient way to approve content to be shared. You know, we've had a similar issue where we'll post something on social media to highlight an advisor and their firm will ask us to remove it just because we included, you know, one word that that is, you know, out, out of their voc vocabulary, basically. So, hmm. yeah, it's it's a tough regulatory landscape, but um, we've developed our platform in a way that, you know, avoids any kind of conflict of interest in terms of you know, language that we use that might go against any regulations and we also accommodate compliance requests from many firms just in case there is any language on the, on the advisor's profile that might be you know subject to to a rule so it's um i really attribute it to the fact that one of our advisors or one of our co-founders jason he was a financial advisor so he's really helped us navigate the regulatory landscape so so you have a, it's a you have a platform two-sided marketplace uh, you, you you match people seeking financial uh, advisors with those financial advisors. So like, what are you able to like tag uh, categorize or tag uh, individual people like somewhere in different categories so that how does that whole matching take place? Sure. Yeah. So we, we are able to kind of tag advisors based on their services. And I think, you know, people often ask us, how do I choose a financial advisor? And the first place I would start is really figuring out, what do you need help with? You know, do you want someone to help you manage your investments? Do you want someone to just create a financial plan with you, you know, one-time financial plan, or is it something that you want to have maybe a quarterly financial check-in? So it's first just figuring out, you know, what kind of services do you need help with? And we tag each advisor's profile with the services that they provide. So in most cases, it's things like investment management, financial planning, estate planning, things like that. Advisors also have areas of expertise. So some advisors might have a, you know, a specialty of figuring out student loan debt, you know, navigating student loans or planning to buy your first home or managing your debt, for example. So we have kind of the high level core services and then, you know, areas of expertise beneath that. And then the last category that we've been using to kind of match clients to advisors is something we're referring to as typical clientele. So it's basically who the advisor typically works with. So, you know, a lot of advisors will work with a, a wide variety of clients, but often there's kind of a through line with who those clients are. And, you know, whether it's, you know, tech employees or doctors, for example, um, you know, there's different groups of people that might, you know, make it easier for someone to make a decision that, okay, this advisor provides investment management. He also can help me with my debt. And he also works with doctors, you know, that that fits my criteria. So those are kind of the, the dimensions that we're using as of now to match clients to advisors. I'm interested in the positive matching ratio that you guys have. So not just matching them, but then once they get matched, what's the how likely are they to actually hire that person? Because at the end of the day, is like, are you tracking? Like, to you, do you care more about the match or the fact that they ended up doing business together? And 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 kind of, are those KPIs in there? Like, which ones? Which one of you found is more important? So, just want to be clear: we only launched the Advisor Finder Marketplace about three months ago. So, obviously, we're we're very young in that we we couldn't really say, you know, if I were to say, oh, we're boasting a you know hundred percent client retention. Well, that's only after three months. So, you know, I don't have a lot of data to really yeah. support that. In the yeah. future, which one do you think that you'll... Well, yes, I just want to be clear. That is very important to us. It's very important to us that we are matching, you know, 
quote unquote matching clients to advisors and, and creating a quality connection there that lasts well beyond the industry average. So, you know, those are kind of both KPIs. One is, you know, our clients finding advisors and our clients actually working with those advisors. And as of now, we actually have a hundred percent success rate in that if a client comes to our platform looking for an advisor and they decide to meet with them, it's basically a hundred percent match rate in that the client has a much higher intent with, with working with that advisor because they went through the process of looking at their options, figuring out what services they need and choosing, this is the advisor I want to work with. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm in a similar vein. I'm curious, like it's not necessarily lifetime value that a, that a financial advisor has with a client because everyone's value is going to be different. But like, I would assume that like the, the churn rate though, has got to be relatively low because I think that once you find someone you know, to be, a, to go through the, uh, the pain, if you will, to change financial advisors mm -hmm. is probably pretty daunting. So what, do you know what the typical churn rate is for uh, the financial advisors face? Yeah, I think the industry average is like four or 5% churn. And I think the average relationship between a client and advisor is between 11 and 13 years, roughly, hmm. which, you know, might seem a little bit lower. And obviously there's plenty of people who, who stick with their advisor for decades. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting, interesting data to look at. It's kind of like uh, insurance, right? Like my house insurance, my car insurance. Like I got that randomly by Googling something, you know, 15 years ago after I got two speeding tickets in one week on the way home from West Virginia and on the way back from West Virginia, spring break, that uh, took my insurance from, you know, a little bit to about $800 a month. So then I Google, you know, <laughs> car insurance for idiots and uh, come with my insurance. And, and now they're the thing that I do everything. But, and that's, that's what, that's probably more than 15 years. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it is crazy to Tim's point. It's like, there are these things that they never really lose clients. And it's like, hmm, that's, there's something valuable there. It's like, hmm, maybe we should all get in that industry and never lose a client. So it's, it's 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 a it's a fascinating industry to me, like one that it, it's ripe for disruption in so many different ways, just in the sense of like what we were talking about the, at the opening of the show is you've got to play the long game. And it was really difficult um, to find a financial advisor that will play the long game in the sense of like, especially if you're going to be able to if, if your expectation is, hey, I want to. You're you're 25 years old. Uh, you're fresh out of college. Your entry level job. They don't have a whole lot of of liquidity to do investing in. But if you can maintain that person for 20, 30, 40 years, I mean, wow, that will ramp up really, really quickly. But I, I just to me, it seems like there's not a ton of people out there that are from a financial advisor standpoint playing the long game. I also think it's um it's part of like this just overall. You know, the, the industry is really going through a huge transition, kind of like like we talked about earlier. Older advisors are retiring. I think almost a third of the industry is retiring by 2033, which is kind of a, a scary stat for, for the industry. But then also we have this new wave of investors entering the market. And to kind of meet the demands of these new investors, advisors are starting to offer, you know, unique service models. So you know, I got basically a, a one-time financial plan and, you know, that, that wasn't a thing 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and nowadays some advisors will even offer their services for basically a subscription fee. So you could pay, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month or a couple hundred bucks a quarter just to have access to a financial professional, ask them questions about your car insurance or about your, you know, your, your switching jobs and you want to figure out how to negotiate your salary better. There's just so many things that advisors can right. help people with that I think a lot of people just don't know that they can ask those kinds of questions. Is is tax strategy more of a uh, an accounting question or is that a financial advisor question? I think a lot of advisors can definitely help you with taxes. And it's just really about you feeling comfortable to ask that question. And you you probably, you know, if it's someone you've been working with for a while, you probably know they have a team behind them. And I'm sure they have an accountant on the team. Um, who can answer some kind of tax strategy question. So I would think in most cases, your advisor can at least provide some high level guidance yeah. on tax. Because as, as that earning potential continues to go up and as you continue to decline in your professional career, I mean, it's, it's just, that's just one area that there is significant change uh, in terms of 
you're married, then you have kids, and then you have 529s, and you make more money, and then you have to look for other ways. I mean, there's just uh, there's there's a lot to consider, and it's just not what fit at 25 is not going to fit at 50. Exactly. Yeah, your needs change over time, um, and I think you know, from my perspective, a lot of younger people are financial literacy is good, is going up in general. You know, and, and there's data to support that over the last six or seven decades. Um, and so it, obviously that's a good thing, but I think it's also important for young people to recognize that working with a financial professional is, is a part of that, you know, overall financial li literacy and, and responsibility. So yeah, it's Go ahead, devil's ad, devil's advocate. I feel like I'm just, this is my new word. This is my new phrase, devil's advocate, devil's advocate that could say that there are some companies out there that would address and agree with your problem statement the same way that you have. But then they created companies like Robinhood or the stashes of the world where you can get micro, um, what do they call this? Micro stock? I don't know what the exact word is. They have retirement funds. They have aspects fractional of Fractional shares and yeah. Yeah, fractional shares. Are they competitors in the same in, in, in that or, or are they completely something different? Should people have both of those type of accounts? Where, where do you see those? Because they, I, I've heard that a lot of these uh, app based businesses where you can buy fractional shares, like Tim said, have been really catered towards the younger generation and have helped people get into and improve the financial literacy, like you just said, Drew. And is that something that is what, what are your just thoughts on, on on all of that is is that something that you guys see as as the future a piece of what you guys do where, where, where is that so yeah the the kind of rise in retail trading has been fascinating to watch and really be a part of um you know an app like Robinhood or i think you know webull is another one out there even even the whole crypto craze is all part of this in my opinion um and i think you know, a lot of this happened on the heels of COVID when people had their, their stimulus checks, um, they're sitting at home bored, maybe, you know, have a little extra time on their hands. So I think it's, I frankly think it's overall, it's a good thing. It gets people involved in the markets. Um, it forces people to learn a lot more about finance than they probably otherwise would. You know, in some cases that might lead to losses, but hopefully you learn from those losses. And you know, I was in the position where I, I tried my hand at Robinhood. You know, I had my own self-directed brokerage account and tried for a couple of years to invest on my own, did a little options trading, you know, the, the whole thing and quickly realized that I'm better off working with a financial professional. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say the same thing that, that eventually if you do it right, one of two thing outcomes is going to happen. You do it right and you get to the point with I'm not comfortable with losing as much money as that I've gained or you've lost every little bit that you did have at the beginning. You're like, I'm not, a, I'm not cut out for this. I need to turn to a financial advisor so that they can. They Is this can because of GameStop? You guys both got into GameStop, didn't you? Is that what happened? No, I did. Well, I think that t timing the market is just, that's an impossibility. Sure. Unless you have some sort of insider trading. Yeah, it just, when you try to time the market and day trade, the house always wins. And I think it's a, it's a realization of that, you know, I can't spend every waking hour or even eight hours a day, you know, focused on trading. Whereas people who do this professionally, that's what they do. Not saying your financial advisor is sitting there executing trades, but um, you know, there's professionals who, who do this for a reason and it's their, it's their entire livelihood for that reason. So to think that, you know, the average retail investor who spends six hours a week, you know, looking at Reddit, can outcompete, you know, a hedge fund in, in Chicago or, or whatever the case is. So, yeah, I think it's overall, it's a good thing that people are getting more involved with investing. But um, I think as we get older and as we, we mature, we we realize that I probably don't want to do this, you know, every day for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm better off, you know, getting the help of a, of a, of a real professional. Yeah. Go up, go out there and make the money so that someone else can invest it for you. Yeah. So who how do you define a real professional then? Because I think a lot of these the individuals, like you, do you want a young uh, a young person to do this stuff, or do you want someone that's been a little bit older and seasoned? Because I mean, that's a I see a lot of young financial advisors out there, and it's like, yo, more power to you for you know hustling, getting out there. But it's like, I don't know, you're like, 
Well, I, I mean, and, and I don't know. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, Drew, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think that a lot of, uh, I, you know, it's a numbers game. They're not the ones behind the computer pushing sure. the buttons. Yeah, you know, I mean, they 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 have very sophisticated algorithms that are going to trigger trades uh, when certain parameters are met. But uh, that's just my my take. I could be wrong. Well, yeah, you're you're right about that, and I'll just you know briefly you know highlight that too. A lot of advisors have a team of people behind them. You know, if you if you work with one advisor it's pretty likely that there's a team of people who are also kind of assisting them, executing trades, making, you know, suggestions, doing economic analysis. So very rarely are you working with just one person. You might just inter interact with one person, but that advisor likely has, um, you know, a team of people behind them. And then also, Zach, to your question about younger advisors and, and really, you know, what does it mean to be a true professional? I think, you know, an easy definition of that is, just making sure that your advisor has the proper credentials. And it's quite easy to check, you know, the legitimacy of that. There's several resources online where you can do that. You can do that on Advisor Finder as well. Um, but just making sure that the advisor has earned the proper credentials to provide investment advice or financial advice. Um, you know, some of those credentials would be something like the Series 63, Series 65. There's a, several series exams um, from FINRA. There's also something called the Certified Financial Planner Credential, um, where advisors can earn this credential. I mean, it takes hundreds of hours of studying and exams to earn this and, you know, hours of continuing education each year. So, you know, by going through these exams and getting these credentials and earning these designations, these advisors have learned a lot more than the average person ever could through just, you know, day trading on Robinhood. So... Um, I think these educational programs just give them a lot more tools in their toolkit to help serve clients with whatever they might need help with. Yeah, I've always been a fan of, uh, I like what Wealthfront is doing. They're pretty, uh, pretty innovative. Um, is that a Richmond based company? No, they're California based, but, uh, uh I mean, like there's just not been a whole lot of innovation when it comes to this, where, where like, so there, I think their thing that they have is actually called autopilot where you put money into an account. And once your, that account goes over a certain amount that it automatically swipes it and puts it into the different category of investment that you're looking to put it into kind of thing. But, um, what's it been like having, uh, co-founders? How many, how many other people are on the team? that are actually, that are co-founders? We have a team of six co-founders in total, including myself. Oh. So quite a big team. Um, and it's, it's incredible. I mean, I really, I don't think we would have been able to accomplish as much as we have in such a short amount of time without such an amazing team. Um, and I know it's kind of like a theme on the podcast that being co-founders is like being married. Um, and, you know, obviously we have a team of six, so that makes it you know, even more complicated and adds a different dynamic. But um, not all of us knew each other before starting to work on this together. And, you know, over time, our relationships have just kind of naturally developed. Um, we all really complement each other in terms of skill sets. And um, again, I'm just so thankful to have such an amazing team uh, to work with. How big was the PayPal ma mafia, Tim? Pretty big, right? Right. Yeah. But that, that extends over so many, so long. Yeah. I don't even know. I, I, I think it's gotta be at least six. Um, but I, I, like I said, I don't know how, like those were like the original six. I think that over time. You've seen that picture of them. Like it's. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, David Sachs. I mean, those are the three that I know off the top of my head, but, and there's several others. Who owns PayPal now? I don't know why I'm going on this this rant, but eBay. Do they? I learned today that Intuit bought Mailchimp. Yeah, so. dude. And the crazy thing is, man, Mailchimp was bootstrapped. <laughs> like they ba uh, based out of Atlanta. They they, um, they really changed email f for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, he they bootstrapped for. I, I don't think they took any outside money. Well, you know, Amazon, I think, um, was bootstrapped, but they had one, I think one investor give them $4 million at one point, and that's it. 
I mean, that's the main, that's the name of the game. If you're able to skip around because you're so capital efficient. Uh, and I think, I think that that's where you have things uh, going your way, Drew, in terms of the, with you and the five other co-founders that you have, uh, and you're able to, especially if people are willing to, they have ownership stake. So whether that means that they are just working for sweat equity or what, it's just a difference when you don't have employees that are, that you have to make payroll or, uh, you know, as, so that, that will change the, the outcome and the dynamics. I see. But. You're, you're right. And, you know, we're very fortunate to be able to bootstrap in the way that we're doing and, and have this, have the company set up the way that it is. And, you know, to have six co-founders who are all just committed to what we're doing and, and really dedicated, it makes a huge difference. And also to not have the stress of worrying about fundraising and, um, you know, really needing to raise, um, that, that also makes a difference in our ability to just focus on building the best possible product. How long does that last? Our bootstrap? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't have a you know exact number, but as of now, we really have no you know no need to raise and and really no need to raise anytime soon. So um, can't can't really give you a, a an accurate number or an official number, but um, fundraising is really just not not something we're considering right now. Yeah, I, and this is an, this is not directed towards you, Drew. This is more to the audience. I mean, it's a better like, man, I'm going to be like Drew, and I'm going to get five other co-founders. Um, I, the only cautionary thing that I would make, uh, to people that are listening would be everything is great until it's not. And when it's not, it's like, what if uh, co-founder five or six, all of a sudden becomes lazy and then co-founder three and four are working five times as many hours as co-founder five and six. And then that's where that animosity could start to creep in. And it's just a, so it's a matter of keeping everybody motivated uh, and managing those expectations in, in some way. Did you guys talk about that? Anything like that before or uh, everything's still on the up and up? Yeah, we, we definitely did, did talk about it and, and make it a point to talk about, you know, probably once a quarter, just have like a check in with everyone. And, you know, I've been a, a student and a longtime you know, follower of Paul Graham and everything on the West Coast at YC. And one thing that I learned about, you know, almost a year ago before embarking on this journey is the idea of like relationship debt or co-founder debt, that if you let things like that just kind of fester and, and go unaddressed, then it can get out of control and people will feel animosity. But if you're, if you're willing to kind of address it in the moment and just be open and honest with your co-founders about how you're feeling or about a problem that you're facing, then you can avoid that co-founder debt entirely down the road. So it's just important to have a team that you can honestly talk about that kind of stuff with. It is. It's, gosh, business is so tough. <laughs> There's so many different dynamics. And then with every personality being so uh, different, it, there's just so many layers of complexity when it comes to being a founder. You're right. I mean, I think all that complexity comes with a lot of a lot of fun. It's really rewarding. It's fulfilling to be a part of a team and also grow alongside of your team. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. Is, is doing the business thing something that you thought you would be doing at this point in life? And by that, do you mean just kind of starting a company or, or something yeah, yeah. else? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I kind of always knew and even, you know, some of my other co-founders always had an itch, you know, the entrepreneurial itch mm -hmm. and Maybe we didn't know exactly when or, or what it would be, but for whatever reason, just what we're doing feels very, very natural. It feels right. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a, an incredible eight or nine months so far, and we're excited to, to see where it goes. What, um, are you guys all in the same area or do you guys, are you guys located in geographically different parts? Four of us are here in Virginia Beach, and then the other two co-founders are up near DC, right outside of uh, DC. So we're all in all in Virginia, all pretty close. Um, but you know, we don't we don't see each other in person that often. Um, you know, all our work is remote. You know, we might see a few of us might see each other, you know, once a week or once every couple of weeks. But you know, most of our our team meetings are just on Slack. So yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a it's a unique 
work dynamic, you know, uh, an, an, an entirely remote team. So hmm. well, well, double sided marketplaces can be very difficult. I think one half of your side of it, the advisors, it's probably pretty easy to get those folks on. It's another marketing angle for them to, to hop on to, to be a part of the customer side, the actual person who's looking to get paired with an advisor. What's your sell to them to get them on so that they do the, the transaction that you want? Because to me, in that case, like I said, one of those seems really easy. The other side seems maybe a little bit more difficult. What, what do you do? What's your, how do you recruit them in? It's a great, great question. So we've been very conscious of this since we started and obviously building a two-sided marketplace, you know, inevitably puts you in kind of a tough position where you have to build both sides, you know, the supply and the demand. So we were very conscious in building the supply side first, you know, making sure that we had enough financial advisors on the platform so that when a client actually comes to find an advisor, they have enough options to choose from. So that was our, our first you know, an important decision that we made, but we also were just very conscious of the fact that client acquisition is pretty costly in fintech. So, you know, we're doing our best to avoid wasting money on paid ads. You know, we don't do any kind of paid search um, and we've worked, we've worked very hard to keep our client acquisition very low. As of now, most of our traffic comes through advisor finder by, by ways of, founder-led growth and engaging in online communities. Uh, like I said, we, we don't waste any money on paid search or effortless, you know, clickless Facebook ads. Instead, we focus on publishing a few really targeted paid marketing campaigns. We cast a wide net uh, in both offline and offline channels. We publish content on our site and social media that's meant to be educational and help teach people about investing, budgeting, saving and getting the most out of your relationship with your advisor. And all this content helps drive our SEO strategy, but we've also developed our application in a way that is also indexable by search engines. So our development team has done a great job with our programmatic SEO. So when someone searches for financial advisor in Topeka, Kansas, then advisor finder will show up. Um, you know, SEO takes time, but it's something we've been investing into since our earliest days and we're already seeing it pay off. And then the last thing I'll mention is distribution partners. So um, the idea of like partnering with some employers and hosting a, you know, lunch and learn or kind of a seminar about the importance of investing from a young age um, or partnering directly with a, a benefit provider, you know, an EAP employment assistance program. Um, you know, a lot of employers want their, want their teams to be, you know, more well-rounded, not only have, you know, medical health insurance, but also, you know, let's give you access to a gym membership and, um, you know, pay for therapy for you as well. So, you know, we're, we're kind of packaging ourselves as a financial wellness benefit for employers. So hopefully that gives you a better idea for different ways in which we're, we're getting clients to the platform. What do you think, Zach? Should we ask Drew the the question that we ask all of our guests? Are you you, you born and raised in Virginia Beach? Yes, Drew? I am. Well, I was born in Norfolk, but raised in this area my whole life. Same thing. What uh, what what is the the one food or beverage that classifies that that, that is uniquely associated with our region? Ah, man, that's a, I love this question. I mean, I would, I would really almost have to say do Mars, maybe, you know, go to do Mars, get yourself a limeade. If you haven't ever, haven't ever had one. Um, I know that might, might not be a common answer. And I know that's in Norfolk, not Virginia beach, but, um, well, I know, just, yeah, just the region as a whole. And, yeah. Uh, do Mars is, is a classic, classic spot in Norfolk. Um, they invented the waffle cone. The waffle cone was invented at do Mars in Norfolk, Virginia. So have you been there, Tim? I have, yeah. Their pineapple milkshake is oh, really good too. The milkshakes are good, yeah. Because they, yeah. Uh, yeah, they they cut the uh, they serve the hot dog on a hamburger bun, right? Oh yep. yeah, cut it in half. The first time my mom ever got one of those, she was like, "What the hell is this?" Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good one, Dumars. Oh man, when I lived in Norfolk, I would frequent Dumars. That place was great. 
Um, unfortunately, though, it's like um, something about Sundays, and they were closed on Sundays too. I mean, you know, you always want a Chick Fil A sandwich on Sundays. It seems like so. Oh. Um, what is your favorite state? Oh, I appreciate That's you a- asking this too. Yeah. <laughs> That might be a first time, uh, first time question for this. There's a reason. Yeah. Sure so there is. I think my absolute favorite is probably Wyoming. Um, really? It's just, you know, if you haven't been to that part of the country, you know, it's almost an indescribable, you know, otherworldly kind of landscape. <clears throat> you know, Wyoming is home to part of Yellowstone National Park and, mm-hmm. you know, countless other national parks. So it's just a really beautiful natural landscape. Is it flat? Is there mountains? What, what's? Um, there's some mountains. Not, uh-huh. not you know, not, it's not like Colorado or anything. But um, yeah, some mountains to hike. But overall, just really just breathtaking, open you know, open landscapes. And um, I I went there first. I think I was maybe 15 on a family trip, um, mm-hmm. and got to go back a few years later on a you know longer, more dedicated kind of camping trip, and just always knew that that for whatever reason that was my favorite place to be you know i love being outside i enjoy the uh first landing state park you know close to where i live here in virginia beach and i know it's mm. not nearly this not nearly the same as as wyoming but um i was there on sunday at the park yep what for there was a birthday party huh are you uh Drew, are, you going to, are you going to something in the water yes yeah at least for one day yeah i'll be there I'm uh I'm volunteering, doing some uh, beach cleanup. I think after after some of the concerts. Oh, cool! You you've been to all fifty states, is that right? Yes, I have, and all, um, even all fit. So you've been to Hawaii and to Alaska. Okay. Right. Yes. Um, it was a goal uh, that our our family no, said. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was, I think maybe twelve or so, my parents and I, you know, we sat down and kind of mapped out where we had already traveled and realized that me at, at that age, I had already been to basically half the States in the U S just by tagging along on family trips or, you know, going with my dad on a business trip. Um, and so at age 12, we, for me, I, we set the goal that I would visit all 50 States by the time I turned 18. Um, and we were again, really fortunate to be able to do that. Like so, legit, like legit visit or just like drive through visit in some of these. Well, yeah, well, I you think know, driving through is legit. I think like a layover <laughs> okay, okay, at an airport like, is not. Okay, well, I mean, like I know that like I've been to Michigan because I crossed the the line and then went back. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. that technically means I've I've you right. Know, no, I get you. I've been to Michigan. Well, yeah, I think you know we we were very conscious of that. You know, not just counting an airport layover as a visit, but actually doing something kind of meaningful in each state. Um, and obviously, a lot of this I did when I was pretty young so don't even necessarily have the best memory of it but um would 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 highly recommend making that a goal because there's so much to see here in our own home country and i think a lot of people just decide oh i'm going to go on vacation and go to europe or go to you know Mm -hmm. somewhere in the the tropics but um there's there's a lot to see here in the u.s and um it's it's fun to explore so did you travel via car Sorry. We, yeah, so we would do kind of a variety of things. Like I remember one of our biggest trips, we we flew to Texas, right outside of Houston, and stayed there a few days, and then we drove back to Virginia. You know, stopping along the way, basically in each state, staying a night. Um, mm. So yeah, it would be it'd mostly be kind of longer road trips uh, on the way back home. You know, time in the car. This was before. You know the iPhone. This is when we had iPods, and you know playing. Oh, wow. uh, you had to read real books. That's right. Yeah, the the good old days. So, a lot a lot of fun memories with the family from those trips. Paul Paul Rice did something similar to that. Too. Oh, did he? I yeah, I don't know if it was all fifty, but huh. Uh, true. You so you and you studied abroad in Iceland. Were you in Reykjavik? I spent um, yeah, quite a quite a few weeks in Reykjavik. But we, we traveled all around the whole country, and we were lucky to, to, to see the whole country, really. I mean, I think you you served there, right, in the, yeah, in the Air yeah, Force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, you, you know it's a pretty small country, so you know, it doesn't take a lot of time to get around the whole thing. But Yeah, like yeah, what, we, three, three or four hours you can drive around the whole thing? Yeah, maybe yeah, six hours at the most. But yeah. um, hmm. 
we stayed with a host family up in the the northwest part of the country. So, ah. you know, Reykjavik's the big city with, I think, a couple hundred thousand people. And then, you know, we were staying in this small town with 2,000 people in it. So what, what part of the year were you there? We were there in the summer. I've only been in the summer, never been during the winter. So that's well, that's that's the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I would love yeah. to see uh, the northern lights at right. some point, too. Yeah, Zach, it's just wild, man. I mean, like, dude, like in the summertime, two o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon, same, same. You really have no idea, yeah, what time. Oh, sunlight. It is. Yeah. It's uh, so it's does the sun. So if the sun doesn't set in the summer, is that what you're talking? About? It, it will like on the longest day of the year, like like it's always like twilight. Like the sun will dip down. It might go below the horizon for just a second, and then it's it's right back up again. Okay. But it never gets like dark, dark. Yeah. Just because it's so far north that, the, you know, they, they can't escape the sun. Um, hmm. Is that because the Earth is flat, or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it remains to be seen? <laughs> no, Reykjavik or Iceland itself is should be a natural wonder of the world with all on its own because it's just it's it's gorgeous. Uh, and Reykjavik, boy, they know how to they know how to make party uh, in Reykjavik. They let yeah. loose. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I fell in love with, with Iceland. The people there are amazing. Um, so, you know, so many fun things to do so many natural wonders, like you said, to see, you, you know, in one day you can see a, a waterfall, a volcano and a black sand beach, you know, all within two hours of each other and a geyser too. So yeah, there's just, yeah, so much to see so much to do. And it's such a, what are the winners like though? You know, darkness. Oh, so it's completely, okay. So, wow. Well, yeah. I mean, so again, it's just the opposite. Like this, the sunrise will be, I don't know what the exact times are, but yeah, like one thirty, two o'clock in the afternoon. And then the sun's back down again at like by 2.30 in the afternoon. I mean, I would always feel bad for the people when they would get stationed in Iceland in the wintertime and then had to work like the the evening shift or the, the midnight shift because they would go almost six months without ever seeing the sunlight. Mm. That's That's miserable. It's, yeah, it's a fun place. Windiest place in the world with population, I believe. Yeah, it really is just a, a very unique country. And it's, you know, it's pretty close to the U.S. I think it's a pretty easy trip mm -hmm. uh, for, for most people. So, again, would highly recommend uh, making it making a trip there at some point or adding that to the bucket list. The Northern Lights could be seen in Virginia, Shenandoah National Park, um, a couple weeks ago. Wow. Oh, was that so? Yeah. Off of Skyline? And I, mm. yeah, I think it's the lowest they've ever seen them. Wow. Wow. What's on oh. your bucket list, Drew, that you'd like to go see next? I've never been to Asia at all. I mean, I've really only been fortunate enough to travel through Europe a lot. So um, Japan is kind of at the top of my list for countries I would love to visit um, in Asia. Um, it's yeah, a lost just, list. Yeah. You, you've very, been, Zach? Yeah. Very clean. Very orderly. Yeah. It's 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 quite shocking to be the, you know the the lone American there on the street, and like everyone just is like single file lines, like everything's super clean. If you get a ticket, the way that they, um, uh, if you do something wrong, you get a ticket. But the way that your punishment is like you have to be um, publicly shamed, if you will. So like you have to wear like the security guard outfit or like the um, the yellow. What are those things called? Like the yellow vest. Uh, yeah, and it's like you have to walk people across the sidewalk or off the um, the crosswalk. Like they really try to embarrass you so that you won't do it again. Um, wild place, a lot of fun. Um, very long flight, sixteen hours. For a guy who hates flying, that was mm. well, Zach, actually on that plane. It wasn't that bad because the plane was so big you didn't feel anything. So that was nice. If I actually, if I remember, I'm curious how did you how did you learn so much about the rule breaking? Did something happen while you were there, <laughs> or it seems like there's a story there or something? You know, I wish there was a story, but there wasn't. Yeah. Uh, I was doing software company at that point. This is probably 2010, 2011. We went over there. We had a client. Hmm. And, yeah. And he described to us walking to lunch one day, I guess, what, what all that was. Also, I ate every part of a chicken that day as well. Um, you also, that place is great. You could get like, um, you could go to like your vending machine and get like one beer out of it. Um, that was pretty fun. Um, but the Did beds, you, uh, cardboard. Were you able to get, catch any game shows? No. 
but I wanted to go to the Tokyo Dome, but we also didn't go there. Um, mm. Ropungi is the place where like you go to hang out. Um, yeah, that was a long time ago, but that was that those. Um, uh, it's not the bullet train, but it's something like that. They have a like a metro system there, and that was the craziest. Google like the Tokyo Metro map and just see how ridiculous it is. Like it's insane. And those things, um, the last ride of the day, they probably cram. I, I, I cannot explain to you how crammed this thing was. You know, as a as a taller guy, and everyone else is a little shorter. Like you just cram into this thing. I mean, it's probably a normal size metro, fifteen deep into that thing. I mean, you're just like this for forty minutes. Like mm. exciting times, man. I don't think I knew that you went to Japan. Have you been to Japan? I've not, I've not been to, uh, I've not been to the Far East. No, I've been to like Southwest Asia. Yeah. It was a week long trip. Um, it was fun. Hmm. I would go again, I guess, you know, I think Lincoln park was in town that, that week. Uh-huh. Did not catch that though. See, I was just thinking of ideas that you can take the team for your first, uh, like, uh, off-site celebration type right. of thing. Um, yeah, all the way to uh, to Japan. Well, I just, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just even, even uh, something even closer. I'm to, there's, I don't know that that would be an interesting idea for you guys to do. You're right. So, yeah, it's it's important to to do stuff like that as a team. So good idea, especially remote. You know, you want to have that camaraderie. Brain fart. I don't know if that's how you say it. Uh, what's something we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Well, really, guys. I mean, I just at least wanted to have the chance to th- say thank you to both of you for everything you do for the community. Um, you know, I know you get that pretty much every episode from each you know local founder that comes on here, but um, really, just just want to have the chance to say thank you and how how grateful I am for everything you guys have done for this this area. Well, thanks, Drew. I appreciate it. What? Uh... <laughs> it's a slog isn't it zach it uh you got tim speechless over there no yeah. it's just uh it's i appre- I, I do appreciate it I, I i sincerely appreciate it it is it's i would like to think that uh all the headwinds that uh that we face were able to uh create some some drag so that you don't have the same wind uh the headwinds that some of some of us face do you find that like it's difficult to have a business here? Not, no, not not at all. I mean, I obviously have no experience having a business elsewhere, right? So I can't sure. speak from any other experience, but not at all. I mean, I've been very, very surprised and uh, pleased with all the support that we've gotten. Sure, the men- mentorship that Tim you you provided through the the seven five seven startup studios and other mentors in that program. So I really feel like. This is a great, great place to start a business. You know, really wouldn't wouldn't have wanted to do it anywhere else. The reason I say that is 11, 2011, 2012 timeframe. You say the word startup and it's a it's a negative word. Like it, it like people frowned upon it. It wasn't there. I like to take the uh, I like to think that I really helped to make that a word that was relevant in this area. Um, you know, you got to. <laughs> we got to get the godfather, you know, go, you know, a little dust off the shoulders, if you will. No. But I mean, people like literally thought startups were stupid back then. Like they literally were like, "This is this is dumb. Like this is we're this other thing. We're we're the military, and that's it." And it's like, you no, know, like because I was doing software, and a lot of our stuff was other places. I was seeing these other places, and I was like, you know, "There's no reason why we couldn't do this here." Started started putting on events, and it, you know, twelve whatever how many years it's been, like it's things have definitely changed, and I think that's a that's a good thing. Yeah. What? Absolutely. Quickly, I know we're running out of, on time, but God, this is when it's only restricted to an hour. That's just so much to talk about. Who, who is what is the target demographic for your ideal customer? So, you know, we kind of started this with uh, an ideal consumer in mind, um, and you know that that was a little bit different than the results that we've gotten. Um, you know, we originally thought that the average person who would come to Advisor Finder to find an advisor would probably be, you know, a little bit younger between the ages of, you know, 30 and, and 49, probably working in, you know, a, a high growth city like 
San Francisco, Austin, Texas, maybe Atlanta, Charlotte, you know, a larger metropolitan hub. Um, you know, we figured that the ideal consumer would also be working in, you know, one of a few industries, you know, kind of a tech enabled job or maybe tech sales, things like that. And so we've been pleasantly surprised to have just kind of a, a wider variety of clients mm-hmm. coming to the platform, a couple people in their, their 50s, um, people coming to us with an, kind of the, the mindset of, I have no idea what a financial advisor does, but I know that I need to be working with one and that it's important to be more financially responsible. So um, really the platform is, is meant for, for anyone who's looking for financial advice. It's free to use. Um, for anyone in that category. And, you know, we're just here to, to help people learn more about finance and, and make a more informed decision about who they choose to work with. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, because really, at the end of the day, no, regardless of whatever age it is, I mean, like the time to start saving for your future is like really yesterday, no matter how small. Yeah, Alan Hagerman says that exact thing. Mm. <laughs> Tells his 28-year-old daughter she needs to be investing in her retirement now instead of putting it off like I did. Parents should be pushing their post-college graduates to get started early. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the idea of like compound interest. That's what I was just going to say. People don't even really know what that is. And just like, you know, like you said earlier, you can't time the market, but the more time you have in the market, the better the outcome. So Uh, you um, should compound interest everything. Your life. Like it, like it all, like Tim, I think Tim said this a couple of days ago, brick by brick. Like that's what it is. Like you start now and that brick somehow magically is going to get bigger. I don't know how it happens, but it does. And it's, it's important. People should do that. Yep. Anything else for the good of the cause? That's it for me guys. Thank you all so much. <laughs> Drew, it's been a pleasure. It. Same well, here. I, 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 I,